Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. True or false? Walmart has eye care. True. Stop by Walmart to save and browse top designer frames right where you already shop. And they accept most insurance. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Hey, it's Rachel Koch, your modern mentor. I'm the founder of Lead Above Noise, a firm specializing in helping teams and organizations craft powerful employee experiences and deliver leadership development that activates change. And today, I'm really excited to share with you a conversation that I had recently with leadership and coaching expert, Michael Bungay-Stanier. Michael helps people be a force for change. He's best known for his book, The Coaching Habit which has sold close to a million copies and has thousands of five-star reviews online. His last book, The Advice Trap, focuses on what it takes to tame your advice monster. And now his latest book, How to Work with Almost Anyone, is hitting shelves right about now. Michael was a Rhodes Scholar, and he plays the ukulele badly. Those are his words, not mine. So let's hear what Michael had to say. Well, Michael Bungay-Stanier... I'm doing my best with that pronunciation. You nailed it. I nailed it. I nailed it. I've really been practicing. You're special. We, we were talking about this beforehand and you're like, <laughs> you're already in an elite group of people that haven't mispronounced my name because I'm, Michael Bungay-Stania oh. gets mispronounced more often than not. Wow. All right. We've started on a solid note. I am so <laughs> excited. You are joining me today on the Modern Mentor Podcast. Welcome. Thank you. I have really been looking forward to this conversation. You know, I know your name from back in the day. You'll have to keep me honest on years. But I think you first came into the ether of the world of of work and professional success with a book that you wrote called The Coaching Habit. Yeah. And I would love, before we start to talk today about your new book, which I am super excited about, I would love if you would give us a little bit of background and maybe a few of your best secret snippets from The Coaching Habit. Sure. So you're right. I I mean, I've been in the world of, I've been, I'm in my mid fifties. So I've been working for 30 some years. And so I've had all the scars of what it takes to be a manager and a leader and a follower and individual contributor. But if people know me at all, they'll probably know me from the coaching habit book because it is a book written for busy managers and leaders to unweird this whole idea of coaching. Because Increasingly, everybody is expected in your leadership role, in your management role, to be a coach or to be more coach-like. And for lots of people, it's like, what is that? (laughs) How do I do that? And I don't even want to be a coach. I'm just trying to get my job done. And do I have to do this on top of everything else that I'm already doing? So it can be a bit overwhelming. And so I set out to try and make coaching feel practical and everyday and unweird. So it starts with understanding the five reasons people resist 
being a coach. And the first one, of course, is look, I don't have time for this stuff. I'm already so overcommitted with everything that I do not have time to actually sit down for a long, rambly, therapy esque conversation to coach somebody. And I'm like, you are right. That is true. You do not have time for that. And then people come back with the second resistance, Rachel, sure, and they say, I still don't have time. Even if you told me, because this is what I will say to them, you can co- if you can't coach in 10 minutes or less, you don't have time to coach. People go, okay, I still don't have time to coach. Even if I could coach in 10 minutes or less, my calendar, my schedule is full. How would I add coaching to all the stuff that I'm already doing? I'm like, it's impossible. You can't. You need to transform what you're currently doing so it can be more coach-like. Then the third reason people are like a bit iffy about this whole idea of coaching is like, look, I don't want to be a coach. Like I've met some coaches and some of them are weird and some of them are too Californian and some of them are kind of like fascist sports coaches. Look, I don't want, I'm not, I don't want to be a coach. I signed up to be a, you know, a marketing person or a sales person or an HR person. Don't make me turn me into a coach. I'm like, I don't want to turn you into a coach. There's a lot of coaches around already. I want you to be more coach-like. I want you to think of coaching as a behavior, a leadership behavior, not a new role for you. And the fourth reason people are like, I'm not sure about this whole coaching obligation that's being foisted on me, is they're like, I don't even know what it is. <laughs> because it's, it's one of those words, it's not unlike mentoring, which gets bandied around a lot. But everyone's like, but what do you, what do you mean exactly? And I've got a really specific definition for coaching. It's, can you stay curious a little bit longer Can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? Simple to define. It's quite tricky to do because most of us are advice giving monsters. We love to give advice. But for me, I'm like, look, just shift the way you behave so you stay curious a little bit longer. One-to-ones with the people you lead, with your peers, with your boss, with your colleagues, with your vendors, all of them. The final reason people go, why would I bother doing this, Rachel or Michael, is they go, what's in it for me? I mean, why would I do all this work to shift the way I behave and lead in a different way. I'm like, look, you want to bring out the best of your people. You want your people to be more capable, more courageous, more competent, more self-sufficient. Because if they are, not only will your team have more success, but you will work less hard and have more impact. So all of this to say is like, I had a really good reason for writing this book, which is like I wanted to make coaching feel like a really useful tool for people, not something foisted on them by an HR department. So in the coaching habit, I'm like, here are the seven questions. If you can just ask these seven questions and start building them into a habit, that's going to cover you for a lot of the ground you need to do to make coaching an everyday way of working. That really resonates with me a lot. This is what I found. Very, very early in the pandemic, when we were still in lockdown, and we suddenly, because we couldn't go anywhere, had nothing but time on our hands, I found that people were discovering around me that things they always thought they avoided doing because they didn't have time, they actually weren't doing because they didn't want to or didn't understand how to. And so I think, you know, your point about how coaching, the objection to coaching usually begins with, I don't have time. That is real. People really don't have time. Also don't know what it is or how to do it and feel really uncomfortable with that. But it feels so much safer to say I'm I'm too busy, right? Yeah, which is a great place to start. It's like in sales when the, the initial objection is that's too expensive. Right. It's like that's not untrue, but it's not going to be the whole truth. And not having time is part of it. 
but it's like, why would I do this? And how do I start? You know, what, how, what's the first thing you say when you start a coaching conversation? Well, I've got a question for that. You know, what's the last thing you say when you have a coaching conversation? Well, I've got a question for that. How do you make sure that you're taming your advice monster so that you can stay curious longer? Well, I've got an idea around how you can do that. So this idea to say, look, you don't have to be a people person. You don't have to be an HR person. You don't have to be trained as a coach. You're just learning this power of curiosity because it turns out in organizational life, being able to be curious a little bit longer is a bit of a superpower. It makes you smarter. It helps you figure out what the real things are to be working on. It helps you to have better ideas. It helps you to build better relationships. All of those are what help you flourish in an organization. That's amazing. I once had a leader years ago who told me, she said, your job, Rachel, is to bring the best ideas to the table. I don't care how many came from your head or somebody else's head. And frankly, the more listening you do, the more ideas you will receive and the more creativity you will essentially be responsible for having unleashed. And that is really powerful. I would love to take advantage of the fact that you're sitting right here in front of me. <laughs> what is that first question? How do you open a coaching conversation? Well, let me give it to you in the context of what I think of as the coaching bookends. So this is a way of starting and finishing a conversation because you're not the first person to have been told by your boss, if you can just listen a bit longer, you're going to get better question, ideas and that's going to help all of us. It was like, yeah, I get that. I know what you're saying. But like, how do you do, how do you stop talking? How do you listen? That's actually hard to do in practice because we've been rewarded all our lives for being the person who has the answer. So the first question is simply, what's on your mind? What's on your mind? And it's the kickstart question. And the power of that is it doesn't say to them, this is what I want to talk about, so let's talk about that. But it doesn't also say to them, tell me everything or tell me anything. It says, what are you worried about? Or what are you anxious about? Or what are you excited about? Or what matters most? What's on your mind? And for people listening, if you've ever thought to yourself, your one-to-one -one meetings, which most of us have an obligation to do, are tedious and boring and kind of bureaucratic, and you think to yourself, why am I going through this motion? Which I'll it's true for a lot of people. This question alone can change everything. That's the first of the bookend questions. The second bookend question is rooted in the understanding that if you're a manager or a leader, one of your most powerful roles is to be a teacher, to help your people get smarter. Turns out teaching people is not really telling them stuff and downloading knowledge. It's about helping them learn and understand what's just happened to them so they can get smarter. So the, the, the final question, the learning question is, what was most useful or most valuable for you here? Because you may have just had a conversation with them where you're thinking to yourself, I was amazing in that conversation, full of gold nuggets and pearls of wisdom and silk scarves of smartness. I don't know what the metaphors are. You're thinking to yourself, I'm, this is fantastic. And they won't have picked up any of that. So when you go, that was a great conversation, Rachel, really enjoyed it. What was most useful or most valuable for you in all of this? It does three things. It makes you stop and name the learning for you. And that wires your brain and you become smarter instantly. It helps it stay in long-term memory a little bit longer. Secondly, really helpfully, it gives you feedback. So you actually go, oh, that's actually what was useful in that. Um, Surprising. <laughs> I didn't think it was going to be that, but it turns out that it, it was that. 
And thirdly, and this is a bit sneaky, it frames your conversation with this person always as a useful, valuable conversation. You're not saying to them, was there anything useful or valuable? You're saying, what was most useful or most valuable about this conversation? And it means that if you've done this every week for a year, when you come up for your annual conversation, your annual review, and they're like, how's it working with Michael? They're like, you know, every conversation seems to be a useful, valuable conversation. I don't know how he does that. It's like, I, I know how I do it. I, tell, I make you name it so every conversation literally is useful and valuable. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. How about Captain Crunch's Crunch Berries with breakfast? Whoa, Dad, we're on Crunch Island. <gasps> it's Jean Foot. <laughs> and he stole our crunch. Quick, the zip line. He's getting away! Throw our last Crunchberry! No! No one steals my Crunchberries. I think you mean my Crunchberries. Choose your own Crunch Venture with Captain Crunch. True or false? Walmart has eye care. True. Stop by Walmart to save and browse top designer frames right where you already shop. And they accept most insurance. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. What I love about your first question, your opening question, and I tell leaders this all the time when they come to me and they say, you know, I, I ask my team for feedback and they don't have any. And I say, the problem is you're usually asking the wrong question, right? When you ask a question like, do you have any feedback? Do you have anything on your mind? And you're leaving somebody permission to say no. But when you start with what's on your mind, if you come back with nothing, that yeah. that leaves you really looking questionable. <laughs> Nobody wants to admit there is literally nothing on their mind. And so you will always get an answer. You will always get substance. Hopefully, you will get some version of the truth. And so I, I just, I love that as an opener because something is going to land on the table. So what question would you suggest instead of, do you have any feedback for me? I mean, I've got some ideas, so I want to share them with you. But what, what questions do you normally ask? I would say, Michael, I would love it if you would share three things I'm doing really well and three things I might try differently. That's it. That's all I want to hear because if you can't tell me anything that I might do differently, I'm not saying, am I doing anything bad? Am I doing anything awful? I'd love three things. You are not putting them in the position of saying, well, I do have some negative feedback. (laughs) Yeah. You are extending an invitation with an expectation of a response. And I think that is really important. Over years, I probably would have started with tell me three things. I'm now down to one thing because that that makes it even easier for people. I go, what's the one thing I could have improved in that? An improvement kind of has a softer landing than, you know, sucked or did better. It's just kind of like, you know, it could be anything from a big thing to just a, a minor tweak. But what's one thing I could really improve in what you just noticed there or what I just did with you there? And that could be really helpful. And then there's also that classic model, what should I stop? What should I start? What should I continue? And that's also a helpful way of going, give me something specific here. Let's get down into the gritty. Let me give you a a framework that makes giving feedback easy. I love that. I think there are different ways to approach it. But I think broadly where we're both landing is that 
the job of a leader is to be thoughtful about the questions that we're asking. We want to leave somebody feeling compelled to give us something besides, I'm good, I'm fine, everything is great, because that's just not useful to anybody. And, and here's, Rachel, what I think is the, the more nuanced and in some ways the more powerful th- act of asking questions, it shifts power in a really interesting way. When you're the person who is giving the advice, making it specific, kind of kind of telling them what to do, you are in control. You have advice. You're the person who has status in that conversation. When you ask a question, you're giving them authority. You're literally saying you, you get to be the author of how this gets written. And I'm quite interested in going, how do we try and play with power and how structure and how hierarchy works in organizations? I think one of the more subtle ways of mentoring and coaching and saying curious is it is an act of empowerment from the other person. I completely agree. And I think, you know, a lot of what I preach with my clients is that there is this default mentality that everything needs to start at the top and cascade down and individuals are just waiting. You know, when is leadership going to happen? When is development going to happen? When are people going to fix everything for me? And I think we all need to take accountability in some way for the experience that we are having in the workplace. I get the sense that you and I are aligned on that. I suspect so. I think the rest of this podcast is us violently agreeing with each other. So, you know, (laughs) if you've tuned in for the fight between Rachel and Michael, this could be disappointing, but there's going to be some really good questions coming. That's for sure. I I think I'm going to throw down at some point. So don't worry. So I think that this feeds really well into the conversation that I am excited to have about your new book, How to Work with Almost Anyone. And we're going to talk about why that almost is caveated in there. But this book is really about conversations and relationships and building connection and setting and managing expectations. And I think You know, if these past few years have taught us anything where we have, in a lot of cases, we have lost being in person, we have lost body language, we have lost signals and symbols that we've gotten used to relying on. And just conversation, one-on-one conversation has become so crucial. And so I would love to hear a little bit, Michael, about, you know, what was behind your writing this book? And then I'd love to get into some of the key topics that you talk about. I think it's just a deep truth that our happiness and our success at work depend so much on the quality of the working relationships that we have. I mean, if I ask people who are listening at the moment to go, look, think of a time you've had a really good boss. You know, somebody who just brought out your best, somehow you clicked, you brought out the best in each other, you felt supported, you felt encouraged, you felt pushed, you felt safe. You know, there's, you can feel the blossoming as you think about it. You can feel just how good that was. Mm -hmm. And then if I flip the switch and I say, so think about a time when you had a pretty terrible boss, one that just, it just wasn't working with. And what was the impact on that on you? You know, my guess is what people are thinking are, I felt small. I felt um, diminished. I felt um, on the sidelines. I lost my motivation. I lost my mojo. I lost my sense of purpose. My work quality dropped. And that's nothing to do with the actual work you're doing. It's to do with the relationships that you had. But for the most part, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone, we kind of cross our fingers and we hope for the best with our working relationships. We start working with somebody and we're like, they seem like a good person. I hope this won't suck. <laughs> it depends how long you've been doing this. It depends on how kind of optimistic or pessimistic you are around this. But you're like, I like them. They've got a good vibe. See how it all goes. 
And sooner or later, it goes off the rails. I mean, sometimes it's a good relationship that kind of just has something happen. Somebody breaks a promise or gets confused or under delivers or has wrong expectations. Sometimes it was kind of bad from the start, but somewhere down the line, you're sitting there going, God, this is not the working relationship that I wanted. And I wanted to give people a tool that would give them a greater chance of building the best possible relationship with anybody they worked with. And I use that phrase really advisedly, Rachel, because some relationships have the potential to be amazing. Some relationships have the potential to be solidly okay. And some relationships have the potential to be at best not too bad (laughs) (laughs) or just like slightly mediocre, you know, somewhere on the other end of the bell curve. The goal is how do you get whatever relationship you're in to be as close to its potential as possible? So the good ones are really good. The solid ones are really solid, verging on good. And the bad ones are the least bad they can be. And I mean, how do you, how do you build the best possible relationship? Well, I think the heart of it is what in the book I'm calling the Keystone Conversation, which is, in essence, a conversation about how should we work together before you have a conversation about what we should be working on. And we are always drawn into the what are we working on because the work is always there and it's always present and it's a fun place to start and it's urgent. But if you pause for a moment, take a beat, just like you and I did before we hit record on this podcast, I'm like, Rachel, what does a good podcast look like for you? What's a good guest? How do I not suck as a guest? And you're like, great. How do I not suck as a host? And we're like, great. We, we set that up. We had a conversation about how we're working together before we got into the what of the actual conversation. Yeah, I think that that is so incredibly important. I, I love how you set this up in that we cannot set the expectation for ourselves that if we do everything right, all of our relationships are going to be magical. Mm-hmm. Not everybody is a silk scarf or whatever very strange, <laughs> fascinating metaphor you used earlier. I love the idea of kind of setting some guardrails. And I think what I'm guessing when you talk about this keystone conversation is that it it forces each of us to sort of go inside a little bit and think about maybe some of our norms and our expectations and our defaults and make them explicit. I'd love to hear, is there a like a story or an example or something that you can share that kind of highlights how using this keystone conversation really shifted a relationship, whether for you or a client or a friend, I'd love to hear. Let me give you an example that's real and present for me. I started a training company 20 years ago, 25 years ago, called Box of Crayons. And Box of Crayons is all about bringing the, the knowledge from the coaching habit and its sister book, The Advice Trap. In other words, how do managers and leaders be more curious, more longer, bring coaching skills to busy managers and leaders. And um, you know, as the founder, I grew it and started and got it going. But three years ago, I said, look, I'm turns out I'm not a great CEO. I'm good at writing books. I'm good at coming up with ideas for running a company. Definitely not my strength. And a woman on, on the team, Shannon, was like, I think you could be a really great CEO. But it's a really fraught relationship, the founder and a new CEO, because founders are terrible people. They're divas, they're they're meddlers. They find it hard to let go. They think of their company as their babies. But with Shannon, we had to sit down and we had to have this conversation. And we actually went through the five questions of the Keystone conversation to go, look, 
how do we work together so that we give you the very best chance to be a CEO who has a chance of success? And we get to figure out how we will navigate the dangers and the risks involved in this working relationship. The three attributes of a best possible relationship are that they are safe, that it is vital, and that it is repairable. And we needed all of that. I needed Shannon to feel like she was safe in her role so she could do what she needed to do, vital in her role so that she's going to be stretched and grown and could be ambitious and could go for it, and also that it was repairable so that when she screwed up or when I screwed up, we wouldn't be tearing the fabric irrevocably, but we'd have a chance to actually go, right, we can put that behind us, we can move on, we can continue to flourish. I would love to maybe bring this down a few levels. I can absolutely see how that might really resonate, say, in the executive suite. I hear a lot from people around me who are struggling with things like my boss is a micromanager or you know, my boss isn't respecting my boundaries and I'm feeling really overwhelmed and I don't know how to address it. And I wonder if you have any advice for these people in my life and in other people's lives who, who are struggling with this kind of thing. Absolutely. The first thing to talk about with this conversation, so uh, we'll get into the five questions of the Keystone conversation in a moment, but effectively right. imagine it is one person in the, in the relationship being brave enough to say, let's talk about how we work together. Let's have a conversation about what it takes for both of us to thrive as much as possible within this working relationship. And it's fair to say that it's absolutely easier to initiate that if you're the person who has the balance of power in the relationship. So it is easier to do this if you're the boss and you're saying to the person you're starting to work with, hey, Rachel, welcome to the team. Let's have a keystone conversation. Or if you're like, I'm hiring you as a consultant, welcome to the working together. Let's have a conversation around this. It is trickier, requires perhaps more courage if you're like, you're my boss. <laughs> hey, I, let's have a conversation about how this works. But I think there can be an easy default to say, look, I'm just the, I'm just the direct report of this person. I, you know, who am I to try and have that conversation? But I'm like, who are you? You're the person whose life is at stake while you're doing this work. You're the person who has to work with this person every day. And it is absolutely true that there are probably some bosses who are not the least bit interested in this conversation. But there are plenty of people who you may report to who are like, I would like to figure out how to make this relationship work a little bit better because I can see that it's irritating for you, but you have to know it's irritating as hell for me as well. I mean, I'm not having fun doing this thing. If you think this is a good time for me, you're wrong. <laughs> Both of us recognize that we're in some dysfunction here. We just don't know what to do about it. And this conversation can, can start that up. So you can have a keystone conversation right at the start of a working relationship, but you can have it at any time during the working relationship because it is this moment to pause, take a breath and go, let's just check in and maybe have a chat about how we could work better. So that's the big, bold, brave step, Rachel, is have a actually say, could we have a conversation to talk about this? And then if you like, we can go into some of the questions and the conversations uh, that can prime that, or we could go somewhere else. What would, what would be most helpful? I am on the edge of my seat. I need to know these questions. <laughs> Perfect. What are the five questions? Well, here they are. I'm excited to talk about it because I haven't talked about much about this. This is like you're one of the very first podcasts I'm talking about this. So this is an exciting moment for me. 
So the first question is called the amplify question. And it is simply, what's your best? Because, you know, in the world of change, there's kind of two models. One is how do we fix what's broken? And the other is how do we amplify what's good? So things like appreciative inquiry or positive deviance, these are all f- ways of thinking about change where you're like, how do we turn up the volume on the stuff that is awesome? You know, Marcus Buckingham and kind of all that play to your strength stuff. That's what we're talking about here. But I didn't phrase it as what are your strengths? I said, what's your best? Because I want an answer that goes beyond just what you're good at. But I want to go- know what lights you up, what gets you excited, what's the sort of context, what are the situations where you really flourish? The second question is, what are your patterns and preferences? A conversation where I'm like, okay, Rachel, how do we work together? What are your patterns and preferences? You're like, I like to record this on Zencaster. I like to have this. I prefer to do interviews in the morning rather than the afternoon or the afternoon rather than the morning. I like to work in a dark room with good lighting or I like to work in a light room with a yellow background. You know, there's different, different ways where you exchange what feels like just common sense to you but it's really helpful in terms of clearing up any potential logistical misunderstandings. You're like, I work on Asana and this is how I like, like really specific thing. I, I work with an assistant. I record and manage to do's and projects and stuff on Asana. I like to start all of my Asana tasks with a verb, with a doing word. It's really specific. It's really quirky. It's because I did training with David Allen and getting things done many, many years ago. And for Claudine, she's like, oh, I get that now. I didn't know that before. I get it now. And so I don't have a minor irritant every time I see something that she's entered into Asana. Then questions three and four go a bit deeper. Questions three and four are the good date and the bad date questions. And the insight behind both of them is the patterns of the past will repeat themselves in the relationships of the future. So when I ask you hey, Rachel, when you've worked with somebody like me before and it's been pretty great, what happened? What did they do? and What did you do? And you can start saying, oh, here's the things that, you know, this person did and it was amazing and here's what they said. It was amazing. Here's what they didn't say, which was helpful. And here's what they didn't do, which was also helpful. And here's what I did and said and didn't say and didn't do that was helpful. I'm starting to paint a picture about what's the system, what's the interaction that makes for a really good relationship for you. And then I'll tell you my story. So you're like, oh, okay, he's like that. And now I'm like, okay, I'm getting some clues as to how to show up to be the best possible person for this person. And they're getting the same clues about me. And then as you can guess, when you go, what's the bad relationship? You're like, when you've worked with somebody like me in the past and it has sucked or been mediocre or been disappointing, what happened? You know, what did they do? What did you do? And you're going like, oh, good. I get to avoid that. I get doing that. So come back to your original question, which was like 40 minutes ago. (laughs) So sorry about the monologuing. Where you're like, how do you have a conversation with your boss around micromanaging? Mm -hmm. In these questions, you're starting to over, you're starting to out. This is what micromanaging and why it drives me nuts is why I micromanage and why it's important to me. So now you've got a conversation to understand why these things matter. And then the fifth and final question, Rachel, is how will we fix it when things go wrong? And part of the power of that is it just says things are going to go wrong (laughs) because they always do. How will we repair it? How will we fix it? And 
it gives people a chance to talk about strategies, but most powerfully, it allows you to keep coming back and say, hey, it feels a bit broken at the moment. How will we fix it? It gives permission to keep talking about the health of the relationship. Those are great questions. I can see all of them triggering a lot of self-reflection, a lot of insight. As I am trying to step into the role of a theoretical person being micromanaged, what I can really envision happening here is, you know, if I imagine myself being that person trying to talk to a boss who's micromanaging me, what I see is that these these questions give me a little bit of space to say, first of all, you know, what does my best look like? My best looks like independence. My best looks like an invitation to create and try new things. You know, when I get to the good date question, you know, even if I feel a little bit unsafe around talking about being micromanaged, I could see in the good date question talking again about, you know, I am at my best when I feel trusted and I feel like I have space to run, but a leader who's there to provide support and guardrails and clear expectations and really sort of over indexing, not so much on complaining about the problem, but really describing the opposite as my best date amplify situation. Exactly. And then Sorry, I'm just on a roll. Um, and then when you get to number five, what I can envision is listening to my, when I say, how do we fix it when things go wrong? This is where now my boss is giving me permission to get, this is how he or she wants to receive feedback. So I see myself walking away with both a space to have painted a picture of the relationship that I want, plus yep. clarity on how my boss wants me to repair. And by the way, I'm probably going to go do that thing tomorrow because things have already gone wrong and they may not realize it yet. Yeah. And permission on both sides and responsibility on both sides for the health of, to worry about the health of the relationship. Now you're quite right, Rachel. These five questions are designed to prompt reflection and insight and, and greater knowledge. And in the book, each question has three exercises designed to deepen your own knowledge and deepen your own answers to this. Because it may be that you go, you know, I'm never going to have that conversation <laughs> with my <laughs> boss. It's just too weird, too hard to do that. But you may go, you know what, I've, these exercises help me be more articulate about what I want and what I, how I work best. And what's required is not a keystone conversation, but a feedback conversation. And, you know, uh, I'm sure you've talked about feedback many times on the show, but the model I use has its roots in nonviolent communication, Marshall Rosenberg's work. And it basically says there are four elements to communication. There's data, the facts, there's feelings, how I feel. There are judgments, my opinions, my interpretations of what's going on. And then there's what I want or what I need. And it's really helpful for me to kind of go, okay, how do I get the mess of frustration and anger and irritation that's in my head and put it into those four buckets immediately. And then I have a choice as to what I want to share. But in my experience, often feedback doesn't get given, not because people are worried about the feedback, but because they don't know what to ask for. Yes. If you can get really clear on what you want or what you need, the feedback becomes an easier conversation because you've got a specific request that you want to make. And then you go, what do I need to tell them? It gives them the context that they need to make this request feel viable and real. So you're like, you know, you micro, you could provide some data around being micromanaged. This makes me feel frustrated because you don't trust me. There's a feeling judgment combination. And what I want 
is I want you to give me 48 hours to work on that before you check in and on with me. Because I've known from the exercises and through thinking about it that I work well when I have a two-day period to go deep on something to get mastery before getting micromanaged. And so it gives you specific language and a clearer request to be in a feedback conversation if a keystone conversation feels not quite the thing. Yeah, I think that feels really helpful and really realistic. And I always, you know, whenever I'm teaching any kind of tool or framework within a program, I always tell people, you know, a framework should feel like a hug and not a handcuff. It it should feel helpful. It should feel warm. If it feels too kind of overworked or too complicated or inorganic, tweak it, you know, use the parts of it that feel useful, but don't feel like you need to follow every step like a roadmap. Hallelujah. Like I'm waving my hands in, in strong acknowledgement, which is like, these are tools. They're not scripts. They're not, you know, things you absolutely have to follow. You're like, understand the principles behind the, the framework and the tools and then make it your own. Do the best you can because something half done but done is probably better than something perfect but not actually done. That's right. And then, you know, the piece that that I think we're we're dancing around but maybe we need to make explicit is like, this may feel uncomfortable and this may take oh. courage. And at the end of the it day, will. oh yeah, it will. Maybe about what, it. <laughs> what I meant was absolutely it will. Yeah. And I think that we all need to just be stepping into a place of being willing to advocate for ourselves and what we need and recognize yeah. that it might not go amazingly well and it might be uncomfortable and your boss or whomever may not like where it landed and yet you still need to recognize that if you went into this with the right intentions and with respect, you did the right thing. So first of all, just to absolutely acknowledge that this will feel awkward. It does get less awkward because you just go, the more you do it, the more you realize what a powerful tool this is. And you get to role model how to do this in a way that feels unweird to the people with whom you're working. But the first time you're going to have a bit of nerves and it's going to feel awkward because it's a fair bet that this is the first time anybody on the other side of the table has been invited in to have this type of conversation. And they're like, what's going on here? But the power of it, the engine of it, is this genuine curiosity in the other person for the shared goal of making working together a better experience for both of you. And you know, if you want to get kind of philosophical about it, there's a philosopher, Martin Buberg, who says, look, relationships have two forms, I-it relationships and I-thou relationships. And I-it relationships are a bit kind of transactional and mechanical, and you're not really seeing the other person for the full human they are. You're just trying to get what you can out of them. And I-thou relationships are where you get to have a more human-to-human interaction. I suspect in organizational life, there's a bias towards being pulled to I-it relationships. Because we're all busy, we're all trying to get stuff done, that other person's a cog in the machine and they think you're a cog in the machine. What I'm championing is going, look, we all win if we can keep building human relationships in our organizations. That's what a commitment to mentoring is about. That's what a commitment to coaching is about, which is like, how do I keep bringing out the full human for that, bring out their particular, for, for the success of the organization, but for their full humanity as well. And part of what fuels this is a deep curiosity about that other person for a shared goal of a better working relationship that will help both of you flourish and thrive and will actually serve the organization. And it will be awkward. (laughs) (laughs) 
I think that was really well said. I love how this idea of curiosity seems to be the thing that runs through all of your books. That seems to be an area of passion. And and I think it is something incredibly important. We all need to be working on cultivating within ourselves. Thank you. Michael, is there anything that feels really burning that I have not asked you yet? That's a great question. You know, I finished my podcast um, with the question, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said? That's a really good question, actually, in a, in a keystone conversation or in a feedback conversation, because it just invites those shy things that may not, may not have just quite found the moment to say it. Yep. It gives permission for those things to be, to be said. But let me ask, so what hasn't been said that, that might need to be said? Um, I love that you pointed to the fact that this probably will be an awkward, <laughs> will be an awkward conversation. I guess the thing I would repeat is, um, you know, if you've done the work and you're prepared and you've done some of the exercises in the book, you've had the courage to ask all five of the questions or at least some of the questions in the Keystone conversation, the call to action is to be the person who reaches out. You know, I was reading recently about people's deathbed regrets. And one of the ones that comes up a lot is, I wasn't the person who reached out. I wish I had. I wish I'd reached out to this person or about this thing. And this isn't quite as powerful as a deathbed regret, I hope. But if you're the person who reaches out to say, what if I could be the person who tries to make this relationship better? What if I could be the person who reaches out to say, I think we could fix this or repair this or improve this. If you're that person, you become beloved in the work that you do because you care about the people you work with. I love that. Be the person who reaches out. We talked so much today about the importance of connection and belonging. And so if you can be the driver of that in your organization, then be that. I think we did it, Michael. I, I don't think we had the fight that I promised. Um, so we might have to do a round two at some we'll point. We'll do that off, off camera. Right. Okay. It's going to get ugly. Michael Bungay-Stanier, author of How to Work with Almost Anyone. And thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show, Rachel. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Michael Bungay-Stanier. And please grab a copy of his latest book, How to Work with Almost Anyone, wherever books are sold. Join me next week for another great episode. Until then, visit my website at leadabovenoise.com. If your organization is looking to dial up its employee experience or deliver some leadership development that activates change. You can follow Modern Mentor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find and follow me on LinkedIn. Thanks so much for listening and have a successful week. Modern Mentor is a quick and dirty tips podcast. It's audio engineered by Dan Farabend with script editing by Adam Cecil. Our podcast and advertising operations specialist is Morgan Christensen. Our digital operations specialist is Holly Hutchings. And our marketing and publicity associate is Davina Tomlin. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. True or false, Walmart has eye care. True. 
Stop by Walmart to save and browse top designer frames right where you already shop. And they accept most insurance. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart.